Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know that we now have a Patreon link that you can access in the episode show notes. You can contribute as little as $1 a month or send a one-time payment through our PayPal account, also in our show notes, or at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. These contributions allow us to continue producing a weekly episode helping families be able to tell their loved ones' stories. I want to thank you all so much for your support, and don't forget to join our Facebook group. Albert Garland was murdered on August 22, 1983, and this is his son's story. Hello. Hi, Gordon. It's Kelly calling from Morning the Murdered podcast. Hi, Kelly. Good morning. Morning the Murdered is a podcast I created because in 1999, a friend of mine was murdered. My name is Kelly, and I am your host. I saw the effects that murder have on family members, and I wanted to give a voice to the loved ones of murdered victims. Every week, I interview the family member of a murder victim. So please be sure to tune in every Thursday to hear their stories on Morning the Murdered podcast. New York City is situated in one of the world's largest natural harbors and is in the northeastern part of the United States. One of the five boroughs here is Manhattan, and the skyline universally is recognized with its varying styles of architecture, from distinct timepieces to the modern styles of today. There are many well-known districts and landmarks in New York City, including three of the world's most visited tourist attractions, Times Square, Central Park, and Grand Central Terminal. The Statue of Liberty welcomed immigrants during the 19th and 20th centuries and stands for the ideals of liberty and peace. One of the world's busiest pedestrian intersections is in the Broadway Theatre District. The subway in New York runs 24-7, proving the city's nickname of the city that never sleeps as accurate. Two of the world's largest stock exchanges by total market capitalization are the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ, and has been called both the world's leading financial center and the most financially powerful city in the world. Going back in time, you can sit back and imagine all of these firsts. In 1983, the first radio show devoted to rap began in April, called Mr. Magic's Rap Attack. Sushi was considered an exotic food, but the Times helped usher it into the mainstream by reviewing Hatsuhana and giving it four stars. The Color Purple's author, Alice Walker, received the Pulitzer Prize for the Color Purple and was the first black woman to receive this honor. A pro-legalization cannabis parade was held under a haze of smoke. La Cage au Fall was the first musical on Broadway with a gay couple performing the leading roles. Columbia University began to admit female students for the first time. 1,600 pounds of cocaine are seized from a van 
at the time the largest bust in New York City, and there were 1,851 patients diagnosed with AIDS and 857 deaths from this awful disease. Albert Garland was born in New York City and resided there for his entire life. His wife was born in Brooklyn. They met through friends, fell in love, and married. They had three children who were always very close and remain close to this day. Gordon was their eldest child. Albert and his wife welcomed a beautiful daughter into the family when their eldest son was four years old, and then two years later another son. Gordon describes his family as pretty typical of the times. His mother was committed to looking after the family full-time while his father worked. His brother was athletic, and his sister was involved in many forms of dance. His mother would be scooting them all over town to be sure they were always at their practices on time, juggling all of the domestic responsibilities and the challenges that go along with raising three busy teenagers while her husband worked six days a week. Albert wanted a better life for his family and was willing to put in all of the extra time needed at his business to ensure this. He owned a live poultry market. People that shopped there wanted meat that was as fresh as possible, opting out of purchasing their meat from the grocery store. This is the story of Albert Garland's murder. Tell me about your relationship with your father as a child. What was that like? Uh, you know, I guess we were um, trying to, or he was trying to provide us a better life than what he came from. So he was very work-oriented, work six days a week, a good 13, 14-hour days. And as he developed his business, he started bringing me to work with him. So um, we didn't have a lot of time off. We had one day off a week, and he was usually tired, but then we had uh, my brother and sister come along. So, you know, we do some things on Saturday occasionally. But, um, I mean, you know, as a little kid, you don't recognize why things are not happening the way you see around. But, you know, we, we uh, my mother picked up the slack. So we had, you know, good childhood. You know, we, we learned his business. And my, when my brother came of age, he started coming to work with us as well. And we had moved out of the city. You know, we moved to Long Island. So we'd take the commute back to uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan, where business was. And, um, you know, uh, short of the usual holidays, birthdays, things of that nature, pretty average what was your mother and father's relationship like? I know you were young, a child, and then only until 22 years of age did you get to observe it. But, you you know, what did you think their relationship was like if you look back on it? It was, I guess, average, you know, uh, highs and lows, you know, good times and bad. You know, uh, my mother was picking, like I mentioned earlier, my mother was picking up the slack while my father was working, like I said, those long hours, six days a week. So she, you know, did the school thing and the homework thing and some sporting events. My brother was a really strong athlete, so she did the running around for um, My sister did, you know, the, uh, what she did, the jazz dance and ballet and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, my mother ran us around. So now tell me about the day that you found out that your father was murdered. Okay, well, it was on a Monday and I had the day off. 
uh, I wasn't working with him. I also had another job I was looking at, I was growing uh, into. So anyway, I had to lay off. My brother happened to have a day out of school. Oh, you know what? He was out of school because it was summertime. And like I mentioned earlier, he was a great athlete. So we went to the park. We played some tennis, you know. I had a really beautiful day. Um, I actually decided I was going to take a nap. And I was awoken from that nap by a phone call. And it was a gentleman who owned a business next door to my father. Uh, it was an auto body shop, and he had been there for years. And I sort of knew him. It seemed very strange coming out of that sleep that that was calling my house. But in all my 20-some-odd years, you know, aside from talking on the street, maybe having a fight to eat, we never really had that kind of relationship. And I had a gut feeling that something was very wrong. And he went on to say uh, he wanted to speak to my mom. I happened to be at her house at the time. And uh, I said, well, what's going on? And he insisted that I put my mother on the phone. I said, look, his name is Tony. I said, Tony, tell me what's going on. And I'll get my mother involved. He's like, well, there's been an accident. And his shop is directly across the street from my father's. So he was looking at, you know, the police and the ambulances and all that stuff. So um, my mother and I, you know, we drove into uh, the neighborhood as fast as we can. And I sort of knew at that point. Uh, I braced my mother because I knew from my association in the fire department that when you come upon scenes they have the crime tape and the crime victim uh, not crime victim the crime scene unit and detectives and stuff I knew it was bad probably as bad as it can be so I let her know that she could stay in the car if she wants I'm going to walk in she insisted on coming so we walk our way through the crowd get to the front explain to the police who we are and they wanted to walk us away to the precinct for an interview which is a half block away uh, literally half a block away from the business. Uh, I wanted to see my father, and I insisted, and they let me come in to view him and identify him. And then we went over to the, you know, the detective unit. You know, they walk us. Uh, they let me in and saw what I saw. We, I came out. My mother was quite upset. And so the detectives walked us down the street to the precinct, you know, seventh precinct where they work, and you know, asked us the usual questions about, you know, who would he know, who would want to do this, hurt him, threaten him, anything. We had nothing, you know, no, um, no idea who and why, and um, it seemed like nobody else knew either. So, um, you know, we finished up in the detective bureau after about two hours and went home. Uh, I had a, you know, I got my mother into the house, show her out, and uh, unfortunately, my brother and sister had to be told, and that was pretty tough. When you actually got there and went in to identify your father's body, what? how did you feel? What was the reaction you had at that moment? I, um, I think I went into action mode versus feelings mode, if that makes sense. I knew, okay, you know, it's... I got a family, you know, of younger siblings in high school, and my mom is already, you know, upset, and, you know, I just sort of went into action mode. I, I, you know, from the minute I saw him on the floor, like, okay, we got some things we got to do. I really didn't, um, you know, I don't think it really, really hit me, maybe for a couple of years, to tell you the truth. Gordon was such a young man when his father was murdered. He shouldered the full weight of the responsibility of seeing to everyone else's needs. 
His younger siblings were still teenagers, and his mother was beside herself with the grief. He was taking care of everyone else and forgetting to take care of himself. Over the next 37 years, Gordon has struggle after struggle to contend with in regards to his father Albert's murder investigation. Gordon being only 22 years old and feeling responsible for his younger siblings and mother, he pushed his feelings down for years. Did it come out for you in any way that was challenging or did it affect your life in uh, some particular way? Oh, yeah. I definitely will tell you, even though I'm not a psychiatrist, that I have PTSD. I know because I've read books and I've looked at the checklist and it suits me to a T. So I don't know where in the process of the first day and the phone call to seeing him and then, you know, funeral arrangements and the business challenges and family dynamics. I don't know where that clicks in. But yes, that is what I walk away with many years later. And I still have it. And you know, it's, uh, you know, it's what it is. I did, you know, I take it with everything else I have in my life. I just move on. You know, I was very busy trying to get and trying to work with the police to find out who did this because it's, you know, time was passing and, um, we didn't really feel like anything was happening. And for the time I was still in the business, you know, like I mentioned earlier, the seventh precinct was a half a block away. So I had a decent rapport with the lead detective uh, for the first few months. And I did reward posters and I got it on that TV clip of Crime Stoppers. Um, I did, we, we laminated these posters and put them around the neighborhood multiple times. So I was really consumed with that, especially once the business was turned over. Um, and so I was doing, again, I wasn't really into that feeling mode, but I did pop into those meetings from POMC a couple of times, really nice people. I uh, moved down to Florida, like I said, got away with it. Every once in a while, I'd reach into the precinct to see who the new detective was and sort of keep it alive in my head. But, um, you know, and sometimes there were people that engaged, and more often than not, if I was able to get someone on the phone, uh, didn't really yield much. And that was in the first couple of years. Um, and then again, like I said, it's hot. it was hot and cold to me where I'd let it go, you know, I met my wife, had some kids, I moved down to Florida, and, you know, I was busy with my life, but it never goes away. So even something simple like watching the news and seeing a family dealing with something like I did or, uh, you know, these mass shootings and all that, it it just clicks in me. When that happens, what, what reaction does it bring to you? Well, for the first years, I was very angry. As time passed, Gordon was working so hard doing what he could to keep his father's case from being forgotten, trying to get answers and find somebody that would have seen something. Guilt begins to set in. The what-ifs. That's a lot of duress to be living under. I wonder if... if, um... I couldn't have put any more pressure on the police department. I mean, I really, I ruffled some feathers. I really wasn't a popular face because I wanted to see something happen. And I felt like it was just passing through hands. Seventh precinct back then was probably the highest homicide rate of all the New York city police department. So I believe, 
and I, and I, you know, I never had spoke to Jimmy about this. Jimmy Cummings was the first detective that that precinct was like a training ground for detectives to learn about homicide and homicide investigations. So they turned over a lot. And with that turnover, you know, the case got further and further from the top of the pile because of the many homicides in the neighborhood and also the turnover detectives that they would turn to. So, you know, at some point, a couple of years down the road, I reached a higher level. You know, I was down at uh, the police plaza, you know, where headquarters are and the leaders of the leaders. And I, you know, I spoke to some people and, you know, I got a very, I mean, many years ago, probably 25 years ago, I got a call from one of the detectives who was clearly pissed and somewhat threatening me on my voicemail that, you know, you don't know who you're messing with because I made some noise, you know. Um, I never responded to him, of course. I did see him once or twice after because I didn't back off even with his uh, threat. But the bottom line is, this many years later, we really never got any kind of closure and really not a lot of um, momentum on the case or what I felt the case investigation. You know, I, I, I along the way, I, there are a few people that stand out that were engaged and willing to do and of course it's not a like it's not a tv program in a half hour from start to finish everything's locked and solid and person goes to jail and all that you know it's life and it's just not that simple why do you think that the police were angry that you wanted to actually have them be doing their job and trying to solve your father's crime well, I wouldn't say the police as a whole. I'd say there's one particular detective. Okay. And I can only imagine because whatever I said when I had this meeting up at Police Plaza brought him some heat from his, you know, from his leaders. You know, whether it's police or any other job. You know, some most people don't care to get, you know, their tree shaken in the course of their job, especially if they feel like they're doing it. And, you know, I wasn't, I didn't pinpoint him. I just said, you know, something to the nature of, look, it's like seven years later. I want your cooperation. Well, through my research and stubbornness, I recognized that I couldn't get the New York Police Department to, you know, give this the attention that I felt deserved. Um, I'd reach outside. So the motivator for me to go to the police plaza is because despite that society is a, is a nonprofit, it's a nationwide organization of retirees come from law enforcement, FBI, et cetera, et cetera. And they take on cases and look at them with new eyes that, that are unsolved. So in order for them, you know, I was very interested in this, and it, and it seemed like a lifeline for me at the time. The challenge was that in order for them to step in, I needed the collaboration from the NYPD. So the local, you know, the detective that I had the case at the time He's telling me, well, no, it's still an active case. We can't give you any information. I said, look, it's not active. I mean, you can, yeah, on paper it's active, but what are you guys doing about it? Like, what, what's happening? What happened in the last six months on my father's case? And, you know, I got, I heard cricket. So basically I went to Police Plaza to, not to get anyone in trouble, but to say, look, you guys, you know, I know you're busy and you're not getting anywhere. Why don't we turn this over to guys who have 40 and 50 years in this and maybe they can have a new new input. Gordon was constantly on top of his father's investigation. He wanted the case solved and he was looking at alternate ways to get this done. He found out about the Vidoc Society, this group of incredible men and women 
take on cold cases and investigate. The Vidoc Society members are forensic professionals. This group consists of current and former FBI profilers, homicide detectives, scientists, psychologists, and coroners. They help to provide new insights into cold cases, and they solve many of the cases they take on. They have very specific criteria that must be met before they accept a case. Gordon worked hard to get his father's case looked at and accepted by this hard-working group that are passionate about solving cold cases and helping families have their day in court. One thing that must be done is the precinct must release the case to Vidoc. The 7th precinct would do no such thing. This case is not being actively pursued. It is now 37 years old. Gordon and his family have had nothing but roadblocks throughout their quest for justice. I, I was told at Police Plaza that, you know, when a case is open, we don't share our cases with any other entity. And I was like, well, that's, that's unfortunate because that leaves me in a hole. You know, you're not willing to work with this organization who's willing to look at it, which was not easy. You know, I had a, quite a few back and forth communications and, and asks to make that happen. And once they were willing, now I can't get the files and they were not willing to share the case. So I was quite disappointed. I didn't make a stick, but I was like, well, then, then you need to do something at a local level and show me that the case is still not just open, but be, you know, active. And so I guess that trickled down to leadership in the police department and one detective got his uh, tail stepped on. I find that so disappointing when, when we hear these stories where the police who are supposed to be there to help, and they're the only ones that can work on crimes, but if they don't have the time and you come along and give them an other, another option, they say no to it. it. It's like they're territorial and, and it's an not, alpha male attitude. It, it is. And, and, and it's wrong and because, it. yes, I agree with you. Because here you are, the son of someone who was murdered, and you want someone working on this. And I've heard this before, where they say the case is still open, so we can't give you the file. But everyone knows darn well, like you said, you know, six months, but it could be five years that it hasn't been touched. And nobody, I, I really don't like that. It really needs to be changed. It's very disappointing. I find when I hear this, I, it really makes me angry, actually. Yeah. It really does. I, I'm, really you know? I'm mellow now because I'm yes. home in front of my daughter. But, of and course. I don't know you so well, but I, I have some real disappointment and anger and frustration with that. Gordon still deals with the ridiculous bureaucracy that goes on interdepartmentally and from precinct to precinct. This mentality that they won't share information when it means a case could very well have movement. Why not take all of the help you can get instead of being a hoarder of files that aren't being investigated? Why not allow families to seek justice from where they have opportunity? This went on for years. About 10 or 12 years in, they had another organization that wanted to help, and the police said no to them as well. Gordon now lives in Florida with his wife and children. 
He goes back to New York City two or three times a year to visit, staying on top of his father Albert's case, shaking the tree, making sure they know that he will never be forgotten. A few years ago, he found out the New York Police Department had reinstated the cold case unit. It had been disbanded due to budget cuts. Gordon's constant pursuit of justice kept him abreast of any new developments. The Midtown South Squad were to oversee several precincts, including the 7th, the precinct in charge of Albert's case. Gordon connected with one of the detectives in this new squad. He was given a detective's name, and this person seemed willing to engage with Gordon over the phone, as not all the detectives that he has dealt with over the years were open to his knowledge of the case. He took this as a small gain. Gordon wanted to meet with him and go over the information that he has been collecting over the many years since his father Albert's murder. He knew he would be heading to New York City in the next few months, and they agreed to meet. So about four months later, Gordon headed to New York, but that detective was no longer working there. Gordon had to start over again back to the Midtown South squad to get another name. Yet another detective. She seemed really nice, so Gordon sent her the information that he had been compiling over the years that he had had at the ready for the previous meeting. This package included several Crime Stopper videos that Gordon had worked very hard to have produced. The episode that was recorded on the Sally Raphael television show on this episode, Gordon was on the show sharing his father Albert's story. A detective unrelated to the case was also on to discuss the evidence. In the package, he also included the many copies of the laminated flyers that he had had made and distributed over the years, the information on the reward money, and all other pertinent details. The detective said she would call back in a few weeks. Finally, when Gordon called this detective back, he found out she too had been transferred. Back to calling Midtown South Squad yet again, just to get another name. It took a month to get in touch with this next detective. This guy had the comprehensive package. He was told there had to be a meeting with the district attorney. Gordon had a good rapport with the DA, he felt the DA understood his plight and was readily available, but also understood the DA could only do so much from where he sat. So, he gave the current detective the DA's number and they were supposed to meet. He tried calling back several times. He got no response. The detective was not answering. This saga is only one short chapter in this poor son's 37-year struggle to find out who killed his father. So frustrating. These detectives and precincts and squads have been predominantly nothing but unreasonable and disappointing. So my younger brother lives outside of Manhattan. Well, he lives in Manhattan, but he's got like a, a second... Uh, he and his girlfriend have a place they live out by the beach in Long Island, and he's a surfer. So he's out surfing about two years ago, uh, maybe a year ago or so, 
And I don't know if you know much about surfing, but surfers, they have their territory because when you go and catch a wave, you don't want to crash into each other. So anyway, they're out there waiting for the waves and he and just a stranger to him strike up a conversation. It turns out they live in the same building, blah, blah, blah. He and the girlfriends and, you know, the four of them have dinner. And, you know, he just happened to mention that he's in the New York City Police Department. So needless to say, they have this conversation. Not only is this guy a detective in New York City, he's also on the cold case squad. He's right. out there surfing, and, and another right. surfer that he Long happens Island, to be, oh my right. goodness. Detective's name is Gary. So my brother, you know, not in the course of their dinner, but afterwards, you know, they, I guess they had the boys talk, or maybe wherever, where the girls run around. He said, by the way, you know, my brother, hey, w- would you mind talking to my brother? And he was like, well, about what? Well, you know, um, you know, our father was killed years ago, many years ago. I mean, this detective might have been in diapers. Literally. So he said, sure, give him my cell phone number. So I call this detective. I explained to him sort of everything I'm telling you that's most recent, you know, about the cold case and how it switched from hand to hand. And he's like, yeah, you know, let me look into it. Give me, give me some time. So I sent him what I have left, you know, as far as, you know, paperwork and information and case numbers. You know, no, I have no file. His name is Gary. So Gary's digging in and he, he actually tracks, he got back to me like two months later, and it turns out he tracked the cold case files to the detective that I just described to you that I could never get a hold of. The last oh. one in the mix, after the one. He says he's now retired. He's trying to get his cell phone number to find out because he can't find the files anywhere. And don't forget, before 1990, City of New York was not on computer. So they're hard files. They're not files that are, you know, uh, there's no technology connected. He finds out that those files might be in a warehouse somewhere in Staten Island, which is like the end of the earth. Come so he, on. you know, so that's going, Gary and I are speaking for about six or eight months back and forth. Really, I can tell he's doing the legwork because he's telling me things that no one else would know unless he really reached in, you know. So to make a very, very long story short, um, currently Gary did connect with this last detective. And that he's trying to find what he did with the files. And remember, apparently he's got some health issues, etc. So that's where we stand. But at least I feel like I have an advocate in my corner because this, he's he and his wife now have become friends with my brother and his girlfriend, and they hang out and they surf and they do dinners once in a while. So short of COVID, you know, they were seeing quite a bit of each other. Since COVID, I've I've texted Gary once or twice and. You know, he said, you know, due to COVID, things are limited. And he's got some other heavy or high-priority cases. I said, I understand. Um, but he afforded me, you know, give him about another two or three months, and maybe he'll physically have his hands on those files and then see what we could really do to dig in. But I got to tell you, Kelly, at this point in time, 37 years later, with my age, I, I don't have my hopes up. But I also, just for my own stubborn PTSD personality, I got to know that I took this to the nth degree because I just, um, uh, you know, uh, I just, I can't let it be. I can't let it lie. Throughout this journey, Gordon has remained a committed, devoted, and unwavering son, brother, husband, and father. He has also consciously chosen to strive to enjoy life. Gordon's life is good. He is married, 
has children, and works hard. His wife and kids never met his father, and he tries not to drag them in to his baggage, as he calls it, about the murder of his father. All these years later, Gordon still wants answers, needs answers, deserves answers. Often, surviving family members of a cold case drift through life, do their jobs, love their families. Even so, there is this fog in their brains, unable to always see through the fog clearly. They wait for it to dissipate, hoping it will, knowing it won't, biding their time, wondering, hoping for a resolution to their long-standing question of what happened. Gordon was at a vulnerable age when his father Albert was killed. He was just becoming a man, was thrown into a life no one asks for or wants. He unwittingly became the champion of his family, giving them the unconscious gift of calm. Gordon is still struggling with his loss. All he really wants at this point is to know who murdered his father in a random act of violence and why. He was shot in the back. Shot in the back, Almost right. Almost as if he was walking away from the person. And, I mean, we don't know, but that's it. The only thing, uh, you know, I mean, we know the caliber of the gun. And, you know, um, the, the thing that haunts me these many years later is some of his employees were in the store at the time. And not, it's not a typical store. In the front section were these, I don't know if you've ever been to a poultry shop. It's like a big warehouse. Okay. In the front section where the customers are allowed to go, they walk in, and you actually see livestock, chickens, ducks, turkeys, sometimes rabbits, pigeons, things that are live. And they're in these cages, and the, and the people that come in could just sort of pick and choose. They see this one, they like that one, fine. So they are taken from the cages, and they're, you know, unfortunately, to slaughter, and then they're cleaned, you know, and, uh, and packaged and paged. You know, people go home with fresh poultry, so it's not frozen. Obviously, the taste is a hell of a lot better, etc. So, in the back of the warehouse, where pay, uh, the, the excuse me, the patrons or customers can't go, is another warehouse where incoming newer livestock come, and also there's a locker room. So, to cut to the chase, at that time of the afternoon, there were four workers in the building. Okay. And supposedly. They were all in the locker room. They were wrapping up for the day. It was like four or five in the afternoon. The all four were in the back locker room changing for the day. Well, three of them spoke to the detectives and everybody else in the mix that the fourth guy was not in the back. So the way the building is, you know, basically they had, if they couldn't see where he was from the locker room, then he had to be up front and had to have seen what happened. But he, you know, and again, I had to work with these people after my father's passing. Oh. So I, you know, I was talking to him every day and finally he got a lawyer and, you know, I was asking him, I wasn't rude. I was just like, look, Kenya, you know, the guys say you weren't in the back. So where were you and what'd you see? And back then he was probably about 65. He was an elderly man, you know, very fit and wanted to work. And he was, had been in my father for many years. Um, he got a lawyer and the daughter came down one day and told me to stop harassing her father. And I explained to her that I'm not harassing her father, 
but it's clear he wasn't in the dressing room like he told detectives because the guys confirmed that. So he saw it, and I know he's afraid, but he's got to do the right thing here. My father took good care of him, and you know, and she was like, look, I've got a lawyer now. A lawyer said you can't talk to him, and that was pretty much it. So they tried to get a, whatever the police do to speak to him, but from there, it basically went nowhere. At one point, they were going to get to him, but he's a Spanish-speaking only, and they didn't have a Spanish-speaking detective. And then by the time it got rescheduled, it was sort of off the radar, and it just, it just never happened. They never ended so up interviewing sort of him? No, no, no. Oh. And, I'm, and I, was like, I was adamant about it for a good two years oh. uh, until he was basically off the radar. I don't know if he, he was from Dominican Republic. I don't think he, I, maybe he moved back there. The daughter wouldn't cooperate. And, you know, not to blame the cops, but I, I feel like, you know, their hands were tied based on the legalities of what can or can't happen when somebody gets a lawyer. And, you know, uh, I, I don't think he did it. I, to this day, I believe he saw who did it, and he was just afraid for himself, which really? I can rationalize, but I don't accept. But at least we know what and why, because we don't even know why? who the robbery. Exactly. Know, the money was in the safe. The money was in the safe. No, I'm thinking really this many years later. The neighborhood was a bad, it's a very bad neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking it was a, you know, a drug addict in desperation, you know, and maybe just my father might have not cooperated. Mm. Um, or it might have been some kind of uh, organized crime mafia thing because in that neighborhood, mm. the guys would come around and they wanted like protection money, like, you know, and they wanted to be your partner, even though, mm-hmm. you know, um, I mean, he never told me that. And, you know, we, we sort of early on with Detective Cummings, who was the first, um, you know, we had conversations of that nature and it was no secret. I mean, Little Italy is right there and, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've heard of John Gotti and mm-hmm. uh, all these organizations. I mean, that is New York City. I really am stuck, you know, and I'm, yes. like I said, my life is good. I have a lot of things to be thankful for. I mean, it's just this just holds me back from having that uh, peace of mind or yes. reaching Nirvana or whatever you want to call it. Yes. No. Um, and, and, and I can't let it go because I, I will tell you, sure, um, sitting here on this phone again talking to you. Um, I believe that at this point, whoever did it is probably meeting or has met their maker right. because this is a lot of time. I mean, 37 years. Mm-hmm. So I'm not looking for miracles, but I'm also not throwing in a towel, if that makes any sense to you. It's, it's you know, perfect, it's like, yeah. I don't have high expectations, but at least I got to know that I reached to the nth degree to do whatever I can. And maybe it's for me or maybe it's for my father. I don't know, but I feel strongly about it either way. Gordon watches crime shows when he can't sleep. The shows walk him through his imaginary wish. Solved, stamped across his father's file. These shows fill a void somehow. Seeing families get justice. After one particular show he watches, there is a gathering. A sort of memorial when the case is solved. Balloons are released. The victim's family members are interviewed. It is very real for Gordon, and it is his dream that he is the one finally standing there one day, releasing balloons with his family, paying tribute to their father, perhaps allowing his brain a small reprieve from the torment he has been living with for 37 years. Gordon tried counseling back at the beginning of this nightmare. 
it wasn't the best fit for him. His time was limited, and he felt after three or four sessions things weren't progressing in the way he had hoped. So he stopped going. Instead, he threw himself into his work and his continued commitment to finding out who killed Albert. To assure the file isn't sitting at the bottom of a pile, that Albert Garland's name is still being spoken and the case being worked on in the 7th Precinct. His diligence is commendable, never giving up, never backing down, always respectfully following the chain of command. Gordon is a man of action. He also helps others. He has been involved with the parents of murdered children for decades. He finds comfort in helping others in this organization, consoling, comforting, guiding them. The wretched position he is in, being the loved one of a murder victim, a longtime sufferer, unfortunately gives him the understanding and compassion to give support. The hole in his heart, in the shape of his father, will always be there. However, it is good to see he has found ways to cope. Um, I will tell you that I do attend the POMC meetings here in uh, in Florida. There's a local chapter that meets, and I, I'm like the uh, like the senior guy, if not by age, which I am pretty uh, much up there, but also because my case is so far and so old. But I feel like I'm giving back to people who are brand new and raw. Like literally within days or weeks, they show up at these meetings, which happen once a month, and they lost child, spouse, parent, what have you. And they're just blown away. So I feel like, you know, it's sort of a very informal kind of round the room kind of thing. And I try to tell them the facts, but try to also leave their burden that, you know, they have other family members that are counting on them. And not to counsel, because I'm not a counselor, but just share some of my experiences. And that sort of makes me feel good if I can feel good about any of this. And uh, it sucks because, I, you know, I, I didn't leave New York because of the crime. I really just needed to get out of New York. Um, but there's plenty of crime down here in Florida. Like, yes. Right. A lot. Mm-hmm. So there's every, the thing that really pains me, and I've said it in the meetings, is that every time I go to that meeting, I see new, new members of a club that you'd never want to be in. What would be your favorite memory that you have of your father? Uh, his laughter. Like, he was a very serious man, but occasionally he'd crack. And whether it was something that meant to be funny or just something that turned out to be ridiculous, you know, when he would laugh, it resonated. Oh, that's nice. It wasn't the volume of his laugh, but just him laughing. Because we didn't see that too much. He was like an old school, really um, serious, not like much of a jokester or not much of a sense of humor, at least that we knew of okay you know i'm the father so when he laughed it just brought you guys extra joy in in your lives oh that's really that's really lovely i'm I'm happy to hear that is there anything else you'd like to share with us today first i would tell them how sorry we or i am for their loss and that yes it's it's a terrible thing that should never be but those that are around you that count on you need what they need and don't let it uh hinder moving forward, you know, although moving forward will be tougher. Mm, yes. That's... But there's, there's, there's 
good life to be lived in front of this event. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I, if there's ever any sort of news that comes out or you hear anything, please let me know. Uh, I, I'm, I'm always interested. Uh, thank you for your time and all your efforts, not only with me, but what you do for the for human uh, experience. Thank you. And, uh, all of us. You know, it's, um, it's a tough nut. Well, I appreciate that. All right, guys. And you take care and have a, have a nice end to your day. All right. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm not quite sure how people move on after a tragedy. There are support groups online and face-to-face, and there are books and family and friends to lean on. But in reality, when someone loses a loved one to murder, they lose a piece of themselves that can never be returned. Memories are all that are left. So talk about your loved one and let the world know how important they will be to you forever. These memories become valuable treasures. No one will ever understand your pain, but surround yourself with those that can understand how important it is for you to share your story. I will now light a candle for the victim and their loved ones, ensuring their memory lives on and burns brightly. You are remembered. I want to take a moment and extend my most sincere and humble gratitude to each and every one of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, or if you would like your voice to be heard on Morning the Murdered and tell the story of your loved one, email me at morningthemurdered at gmail.com. That's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-T-H-E-M-U-R-D-E-R-E-D at gmail.com. Thank you to Dennis for editing this podcast. You are absolutely indispensable. Thank you so much. A huge shout out to Patrick for creating the original music that you hear. And the artwork for this podcast was created by Talia with support from Matt and Mick. Thanks so much, guys.